Friends, Luke in his gospel records many acts of Jesus' healing. Speaking of healing and physicians, a hospital administrator was walking down the corridor one day and was startled to see a patient run out of the operating room, his hospital gown flapping in the breeze behind him. She stopped the patient and said, Sir, do you mind telling me why you ran out of the operating room? And he responded, Well, it was because of what the nurse said. And what was that? She said, be brave. An appendectomy is actually quite a simple procedure. The administrator said, well, I would think that would be comforting. The patient answered, the nurse wasn't talking to me. She was talking to the surgeon. <laughs> Before we jump into today's uh, text, which Paul's going to read for us in just a minute, and it involves Jesus healing a demon-possessed person, I want to ask two introductory questions. The first is pretty obvious. Did Jesus authentically heal? Did he really have a healing ministry? Or are these just pious legends invented by well-meaning Christians to try to um, encourage skeptics? Back in 1861, French historian Ernest Renan, a thoroughgoing rationalist, published his blockbuster, The Life of Jesus, and in that controversial work, Renan jettisoned every vestige of the miraculous. He just purged the gospel narratives of everything that could be thought of as miraculous. Well, fortunately today, such skeptical thinking is widely rejected even in many, not all, but many scholarly circles. But anyway, that's a question we'll deal with. Is this an authentic event or is this just a legend? And secondly... What is the purpose, or at least an important purpose, of Jesus' healing ministry, assuming it was authentic? With that introduction, Paul is going to come and read our text today from Luke. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test Jesus, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out the demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is, uh, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord. 
So in the text Paul just read, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who had been mute, so he begins to speak, and that attracts an amazing response from the crowd. I mean, they're shocked and amazed. But there were some critics who leveled this slanderous accusation. Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Notice what this comment means. Even skeptics among the crowd could not dispute the authenticity of Jesus' healing acts. There were simply far too many of them. The best his opponents can do, the very best they can do, is to cast aspersions on the source of the power Jesus accessed to perform such wonders. And friends, that's in the gospel narrative, but when we look at Secular literature among both Jewish and Greco-Roman opponents of the Christian faith from the first two centuries, people say the same thing. They can't counter the reality of Jesus' healings either. They can only say, but the source of power he used is irregular or wrong or scandalous. For example... Jewish first century historian Josephus simply labels Jesus as a doer of miracles. He doesn't cast any aspersions at all. But in his dialogue with Trypho, Justin Martyr, an early second century Christian, paused to express the Jewish view that Jesus was, quote, a Galilean magician. That is, Jesus accessed the secret magical arts in order to heal. A Greco-Roman opponent, the Greek philosopher Celsus, wrote in the 2nd century to debunk both Judaism and Christianity. And he began his attack by saying Jesus performed his miracles by magic. Now most historians would agree, friends, that if someone's allies and friends and co-workers say something about this individual and their sworn enemies and opponents say the very same thing, as a historian, you must allow it is authentic. That is the case with Jesus' healing ministry. Do you get that? People could not counter the obvious difference Jesus made in people's lives. The worst they can do is simply say, oh, but the source of his power, very questionable. Well, that's the assessment of a famous historian, Morton Smith, professor of ancient history at Columbia University, now deceased. And believe me, no one would ever identify Morton Smith as an evangelical Christian. He argues that exactly what I said to you, that if your friends and enemies say the same thing as a historian, you have to say it's authentic and true. And this is what he says about Jesus' popularity. He writes, Jesus won his following primarily as a miracle worker. If we begin with Jesus' miracles, we can understand his authority as a teacher, his involvement in messianic speculation, and his ultimate crucifixion. But if we begin with his teaching, his role as a miracle worker and the consequent events and beliefs are left unexplained. He continues, of the thousands of teachers of the law of God in rabbinic literature, none had a career similar to that of Jesus. He is a figure of a different social type. Back to our text. So that's the criticism. Jesus 
We can see you're doing miracles, but you're accessing the powers of evil to perform them. How does he respond? He says, look, every kingdom divided itself is a desert. House falls on house. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? In other words, if Jesus' critics are right, he's waging a civil war against his friend and ally, Satan. That makes no sense at all. Because while the devil destroys, Jesus delivers. While Satan cripples, Jesus heals. While demons keep people in bondage, Jesus liberates. Now he claims in this passage that he has already won a victory over Satan, which his healings reveal. So that's one of the meanings of his healing ministry. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. So in this short parable or simile, Jesus is, of course, the strong man who overpowers Satan, his adversary. Now, in this confrontation, Jesus makes an important proclamation about the kingdom of God, or or you might say God's kingly reign. Many people think it's the central theme in all of Holy Scripture, but if not that, it's at least a, a very powerful theme in both the Hebrew Scripture and in the Greek New Testament as well. Earlier in, in his Good News document, Luke has recorded Jesus' statement about the purpose of his ministry when he announced that the focus of that ministry is the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God, God's kingly reign. And of course, in Jesus' model prayer as recorded by Luke, one of the requests that Jesus teaches us to make is, your kingdom come. So that prayer clearly teaches that at least the consummation of God's kingly reign is a still a future hope. And yet, in this particular text, Jesus asserts, if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come. That's the aorist active indicative. It's the past tense generically in Greek, uh, Koine Greek. It's without question then a past act. So Jesus is saying, he's making a radical claim here, friends, that he is both the instrument and the bearer, the carrier, if you will, of God's kingly reign. While many others proclaimed the kingdom of God as a future hope, lots of others did that, Jesus is the first, to my knowledge, to announce that it has arrived. It's present in him. And this also suggests another key purpose of Jesus' healing ministry, in addition to certainly showing God's love and mercy, God's concern for each one of us when we suffer and struggle, but an additional purpose is to affirm that God's kingdom has, in fact, arrived in his person. Now, sometimes when we think about the kingdom of God, we make the mistake of equating it with the visible church today. So, like, you know, this is God's kingdom in Santa Rosa, a part, a part of it. But nowhere in the New Testament do we hear the kingdom of God equated with the church. That's, that's never stated, ever. Rather, we exist as the church to announce and to serve God's kingly reign. Now, as members of the church and individual Christians, nowhere in the New Testament does it suggest that we build the kingdom. But Jesus teaches that we are to seek the kingdom first of all 
and, we, and that when we serve Him, we are also simultaneously serving God's kingdom. So we don't build the kingdom. The triune God must do that. However, there's a nuance here. We are still to be agents of God's kingdom. And in the words of scholar N.T. Wright, we are all called to build for the kingdom. What does that mean? Is that just a theologian playing with words? Hopefully not. Here's the illustration that Wright gives, and it involves building a cathedral. He uses the illustration of a stonemason who's just part of, you know, hundreds of different craftspeople working on this cathedral. Now, the architect has drawn up the plans and passed them on to a whole team, actually teams of masons, telling them which stones need to be carved in which ways. So one is shaping a tower, one is shaping one of a number of gargoyles, another is shaping a statue of a saint or a martyr. Now they're aware that many other kinds of craftspeople besides masons are also at work on this huge future edifice, this wonderful cathedral. And these individual workers have likely not seen the architect's drawing of the entire structure. And they, may sell, they themselves may not live, in fact, to see it completed, and most didn't. However, they trust the architect that their work, their contribution, will not be wasted. They are not themselves building the cathedral, but they are building for the cathedral. And friends, so are we. And what this means is that all of our acts of evangelistic outreach, of compassionate service, of creation care, doing justice, loving kindness, meeting needs in obedience to Christ and in the power of His Spirit, and every prayer uttered in faith will be enhanced and transformed and put to good use by Christ when he returns at the end of human history to consummate God's reign as king. And so today, friends, Jesus, who is the instrument and the bearer of God's kingly reign, invites each of us, each one of us, no exceptions, to build for God's kingdom. Amen.